Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, we are coming, and this will probably be the shortest Bible study you will ever do with me, but we are coming to the end of the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to James chapter 5. This is the last chapter in this short but very practical book. And because we are very practical people, we'll turn our attention to what the Apostle has to say. So we're going to read through the first six verses. We may get through those and move on to the rest of the book, but we'll start with the first six. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Well, James returns to this subject as he comes to the close of his letter, this subject of money, wealth, and possessions. And I say he returns to it because, ironically, this is how he really began his letter. If you go back to James chapter 1 and you look at verse 9, you find these words, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So that's how he begins the letter, chapter 1, talking about the deceitfulness of wealth. And here he is returning in the very last chapter of the letter to the same subject. So James obviously is very concerned about wealth, money, possessions. And of course, James is not the only one. Jesus talks at great length about this subject. In fact, Jesus talks more about money and how we handle our money and our possessions than practically any other subject. Paul also deals with the subject of money and wealth. And so you might get the impression that if you are a Christian, money, wealth, and possessions are not things that we should have. So the first thing I want to do today as we begin this final chapter of the epistle is to set the record straight on this whole subject of money, wealth, and possessions. It's something that has come up recently, not only in this study of James, but a few weeks ago I preached on the rich young ruler. That came up in the lectionary, so an opportunity to address the subject on that occasion as well. But it is something that is worthy of our attention, particularly as Americans, because as I pointed out to you many times, we are among the most affluent people, not only on the face of the earth today, but we are among the most affluent people in all of history. We enjoy luxuries, the likes of which previous generations have had no idea. 
Even the poorest among us in Western society have it better off than many people who lived in previous generations. So in previous generations, if they were to see the poor among us, they might recognize that the poor among us are even rich. And yet we should not be fooled into believing that wealth is somehow a sin. Because the Bible is very clear, wealth really is nothing more than an economic state. I pointed out to you in that sermon a few weeks ago that being wealthy does not necessarily make you a sinner any more than being poor makes you virtuous. In fact, some of the people in history, some of the great saints of the church, some of the great heroes of the faith were wealthy, property people. I brought to your attention in the Old Testament, people like Abraham. If you read the story of Abraham, Abraham was a rich man. He was property. He had flocks and herds, and that was the measure of wealth in that day and age. He was a very wealthy man by the standards of his day. And then you think, of course, about King David, king of Israel, and the wealth that he had, and Solomon. We're told that the queen of the south came to see Solomon, and she was impressed by his wisdom. She was also overawed by his great wealth. And you think about the great temple that he built there in Jerusalem as a dwelling place for God. These were wealthy, powerful, propertied people. And this was not just a phenomenon in the Old Testament. We know that there were people in the New Testament who were great saints who were also wealthy and propertied. I think about Joseph of Arimathea. He was the man who provided the tomb in which Jesus was buried, and we're told that he was a rich man. Or you think about Lydia in the book of Acts, who was the dealer of purple cloth. Well, purple cloth in the ancient world was a very valuable thing. If you were a dealer in purple cloth, you were a wealthy tradesman or tradeswoman. And so Lydia was a very wealthy person. You think about Barnabas, also in the book of Acts. Barnabas, we're told, was a Jew of the Diaspora. He was a Jew from outside of Jerusalem. He was from the Isle of Cyprus. But he was a wealthy man, a property man. We're told that he sold a valuable piece of property and brought the proceeds and gave it to the church in Jerusalem. They changed his name. His real name was Joseph. But because he was such an encourager by his act of generosity, they called him Barnabas, which means a son of encouragement. So these were wealthy, property people. And their wealth did not make them sinners. And there were other people in the New Testament and in the Old who were poor and they were not necessarily virtuous. So we need to understand that wealth, poverty, these are neither virtues nor are they sins. They are simply economic states. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the poor. Uh, it's very interesting if you look at Matthew's version and you look at Luke's version. Thanks be to God, we have both versions. Because one of the writers expands on the other and really explains to us what Jesus means. So keep your finger there in James and turn back for just a moment. We'll start with Luke. Turn back to Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most famous of all Jesus' teachings. And we have the Lucan version of the Beatitudes. It's interesting, sometimes scholars refer to this particular, some scholars have argued that this is a different sermon, it's not the same sermon, it's not actually the Sermon on the Mount. Some have argued that it was the Sermon on the Plain. If that's the case, that's a great comfort to me as a preacher. Do you know why? Because it teaches us that even Jesus recycled sermons from time to time. 
So that could be an encouragement to us. But look at Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And he, that is Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, if you read the Luke inversion of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, you get the impression that the poor are the ones who are going to be blessed in heaven. I mean, that's what Jesus says, isn't it? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, which means those of you who are rich, you're cut out. The poor go to heaven, and the rich, well, you can go to hell. Basically, that's what the impression is if you read those words. But look at the Matthew version of this. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, which is an expanded version of this same teaching. Now I say some scholars have argued that it's two different teachings, a variation on a theme, because in the Lucan version it says he came down to a level place, whereas in the Matthew version it says that he went up on the mountain. I don't think there's much of a controversy there. Those of you who've been with me to the Holy Land and you've actually been to the Mount of Beatitudes, you've been to that place, you notice that there is a place where you can come down off the summit to a level place. There is a natural amphitheater there. It would have been the ideal place for Jesus to teach huge crowds of people in order that they might hear him. So I don't know that this is necessarily Jesus recycling a sermon. It may be. Nothing wrong with that. If it deserves to be heard once, it deserves to be heard twice. But look at what Matthew says in chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's clear here that he's not talking about somebody's economic status. He's talking about the condition of their heart. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Isn't this what David said in Psalm 51 when he said, A broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, thou wilt not despise. Man looks on the outward appearance, God is concerned with the heart. And so that's what Matthew is teaching us here. He's saying that, yes, the poor will be blessed, but it is those who are poor in spirit. That is to say, those who have no confidence in themselves. Utter confidence in God. This is one of the great principles of biblical interpretation, that Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you find in one of the Gospels, especially, that there is a passage that is confusing to you, you ought to go and look and see if one of the other Gospels has a similar passage that might expand your understanding. So Jesus makes it very clear. 
It's the poor in spirit who will be blessed, who will inherit the kingdom of God. Being poor does not automatically give you a ticket into the kingdom. And yet, while wealth and poverty are just economic states, and there's no virtue or sinfulness attached to either, nevertheless, Jesus is very clear, and indeed the whole New Testament witness is very clear, that wealth, property, possessions, these things are serious liabilities when it comes to our spiritual health. And we talked about why that is the case when we looked at the rich young ruler. We said one of the things that wealth does is it gives you a sense of independence. You know, when you're wealthy, you don't need help from anybody, really. You can do everything pretty much by yourself, and that's exactly what the wealthy like to do. Leave me alone. I can handle this myself. And we're led to believe that we really are independent creatures. But the reality is, every single one of us is just that. We're a creature. And God is the creator. And every single breath we take, every moment we have, is a gift from God. It's on borrowed. It's on loan to us. It's not something that you and I possess. But wealth can give you the impression that you are in control, that you are in charge. And so wealth is a spiritual liability for that reason. I pointed out in that sermon a few weeks ago that the other thing that wealth does is it has a tendency to bind you to this earth. Jesus is very clear. If you and I are going to store up riches, he said, don't store it up here on earth. Why? Because it's corruptible. It will pass away. It will corrode. James, James even says that here in the passage that we talked about. Look at what he says here. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, for your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. It's very interesting. It's almost as though James is echoing those very words from Jesus, and indeed he is. He was the Lord's brother. He'd heard Jesus talk about these things. And instead, Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, I pointed out to you a few weeks ago that if your treasure is here on earth, it can't be in heaven. And the interesting thing that Jesus said is that your treasure doesn't follow your heart. Your heart follows your treasure. So that's one of the reasons why wealth, money, property, these are spiritual liabilities. Jesus makes this point very clear also that wealth can make you oblivious to the plight of others. There's probably no more graphic depiction of this than in one of Jesus' parables, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Keep your finger there in James and turn, if you will, to Luke. Just a little bit of trivia. This is the only parable that Jesus tells in which he names one of the characters. Most of the time, he doesn't ascribe a name to the characters. He'll simply say there was a wealthy man, there was a son, there was a younger son, there was an older son, whatever it may be. But this is the only time that Jesus actually names the person, which may indicate that there's more to this story than just a lesson. But here's what Jesus says. 
Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is a pitiful picture. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may also be warned, lest also they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there's a perfect example of a rich man feasting sumptuously. Here's this poor man that is laid at his gate. Every day when he goes in and out of his property, he sees that man. He sees him, he notices him, but he doesn't take notice of him. But he certainly takes notice of him when all of a sudden he's in anguish and he sees Lazarus up there in paradise. See, that's what wealth can sometimes do. It makes you oblivious to the plight of others until you are suffering that plight for yourself. So this, wealth is not a sin. But the Bible is very clear, unanimous in its witness, wealth is a serious spiritual liability. And that's what James is referring to, as I said, in this last chapter. He's returning to the same theme that he had in the first chapter, the deceitfulness and the danger of wealth. Now, when he talks about the wealth here, he's not talking about the same people that he was talking about in chapter 1. In chapter 1, James is really talking about believers. Here, in chapter 5, as we're going to see, what he's really talking about are people who are wealthy but are unbelievers. So he warns believers in the first chapter, but he speaks in a judging way of those who are wealthy but unbelievers in the last chapter. What does he say about them? Well, he says a number of things, verses 2 through 3. He says, first of all, that they should weep and howl because they have been storing up treasures for themselves. Now, in the ancient world, there were basically three ways that you could show that you were a wealthy individual. One was by dressing extravagantly. That's exactly what Jesus talked about in that parable, wasn't it? A man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. 
That's how you knew a wealthy man or a wealthy woman in the ancient world. They dressed extravagantly. Here's the second thing they did. They feasted lavishly. And the reason for that was this was an agrarian culture. It was possible for whole communities, if a blight came upon the crops, to just disappear overnight. Most people lived on the margin. Most people lived on a knife's edge. It's not like us today. We, we can't even imagine that, really. I mean, even the poor can go to a food bank and get something to eat. And if we need anything at all, food is readily available to us, isn't it? Even at the beginning of COVID, when there was a shortage of such things as toilet paper, nevertheless, none of us was really in any danger of being without. And even with ships stacked up out at sea because they can't get into port, very few of us are really missing anything at all. I know that because an Amazon package comes to my house at least once a day. So they dressed extravagantly, they feasted lavishly. When other people could not get access to food, nevertheless, the rich feasted lavishly, and they, spended, they spent wildly. Of course, that was exactly what Jesus was talking about in that other parable that he told, the parable of the prodigal son, who came to his father and demanded his inheritance, and he went off, and he got his inheritance, and what did he do? He went into a far country, and he spent it on wild living. Well, if you think about it, very little has changed in 2,000 years. The rich still dress extravagantly, don't they? They still feast lavishly, and they still spend wildly. So Jesus is not just talking about people in that day. James is not just addressing the culture of the first century. Both Jesus and James are addressing people today, people that we see on a regular basis. So he condemns them for that in this culture in which people were living on the margin. He does something else. He condemns them for trusting in their riches. Verse 3, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have not really planned. You think that you have planned, but you plan for this life. You have not planned for eternity. And so he condemns them for not planning for eternity. The point that James is making here is that each and every one of us knows that this life is not all there is. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful argument. It's a great apologetic. It's called the argument from desire. Lewis said that there is within every one of us desires. And those desires are evidence of the fact that there is something else out there. He said, for example, we all have a desire for food. Why is that? Because there is food. You're hungry, which means that there is something that can satisfy your hunger. If you're thirsty, that desire indicates that there is something out there that can satisfy or quench your thirst. He says there is, hardwired within every single human being, a desire for God, which that desire for God should indicate that there is what? A God who is out there, and we should be seeking him. That's his argument from desire. And it's a powerful argument, if you think about it logically. But the wealthy weren't interested in these things. 
Even though they knew there was a God, they were suppressing the truth, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, and they were storing up for themselves, but storing up for themselves only here on earth. Jesus warns us about this again. I'm going to go back and forth between Jesus and James because, as I said, James is the Lord's brother. He spent time with Jesus. He learned from the Lord. In some ways, James, in his teaching, is closer to the Jesus than any of the other apostles in the way that he presents the argument. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. Perfect example. Comes from Jesus, but it's exactly what James is talking about here in chapter 5. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, is engaged in teaching the crowds. And in the midst of his teaching, someone comes up and interrupts him. I got to tell you, that really irritates the teacher. I, I just, I just got to put it out there. That you're in the middle of a thought, and all of a sudden the hand goes up, or somebody clears their throat, or somebody says, excuse me. That's Here's the master teacher. This is Jesus teaching the crowds, engaged in a very important lesson, and all of a sudden, somebody, with no thought to the rest of the people standing around, interrupts the Lord. About what? About money. Look at this, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Translate, what in the world are you doing? I'm in the middle of a lesson. I'm not, I'm not a judge. But then he goes on to say, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced pl plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. That's exactly what James said the people were doing. The rich of his day were storing up for today, thinking that they were going to live forever. And he says, that is a dangerous thing to do. Here's the final thing that they were doing. Feasting lavishly, dressed in fine raiments, storing up for the present with no thought to eternity. But here's something else that they were doing that really grieved the Lord, James said, and that is they were giving no thought to others. As a matter of fact, they saw others only as a means to an end. They abused those who worked for them. They obtained their wealth at the expense of others. Behold, verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. James says that 
is how the wealthy of his day acted. And if you think about it, it's the way the wealthy act today. We act in precisely this way today. Don't we take advantage of other people? Don't the wealthy oftentimes? They keep getting more and more and more wealth, but the people down here are just striving to make it through. We call them the working poor. No matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they work, they somehow cannot break free of the stranglehold that poverty has on them. Well, the wealthy get wealthier and wealthier, and we see this huge gap in our society that is probably as great as it has ever been in history, but it is very similar. There is, if there is one class of people that is shrinking, what's that class? It's the middle class. And that is exactly what James is talking about. So, what's going to be the result? These are unbelievers. These are people who are acting with no regard whatsoever to God and no idea as to the concept of eternity. What is going to be the response? Well, he makes it very clear. It's all going to be for nothing. It's all going to be for nothing. We talked about this last week. When you die, how much are you going to leave behind? You're going to leave it all behind. And that's what James is warning the people about in his day. It's not just a warning... It is a warning of a future condemnation. It is exactly what the rich man in Jesus' parable experienced. You had your luxury, you had your comfort in this life, but in the life to come, separation from God. What's it all worth? That's the question that James is asking. He's saying hoarding your riches will reap very poor dividends. I'm reminded of William Henry Vanderbilt. You know the last name. Do you know who William Henry Vanderbilt was, actually? He was one of the Vanderbilts, but he was the second son. He was the second Vanderbilt. He was the first son of Commodore Vanderbilt, the man who founded the Vanderbilt fortune. When Commodore Vanderbilt died around 1877, he left the bulk of his wealth to his eldest son, who he once referred to as a blockhead. Commodore Vanderbilt was a cruel man in many ways. But at the time that he died in 1877, at the beginning, the dawn of what we call the Gilded Age, that's what Mark Twain described it as, gilded, he said, because it was very impressive on the outside, but don't scrape too far below the surface before you find something that is very base. But this was the dawn of the Gilded Age. When Commodore Vanderbilt died, he died leaving behind a fortune worth $100 million. Now that's in 1877. $100 million. That's a lot of money today. Imagine what that was like in the mid-19th century. His son, William Henry Vanderbilt, inherited that $100 million, and in less than nine years, the blockhead doubled the fortune. $200 million. Now, you take inflation into consideration, and do you know how much $200 million in 1877 would be today? Over $6 billion. In a day, when the average laborer made $345 a year. 
That made William Henry Vanderbilt the richest man on earth in 1885 at the time of his death. And yet when a newspaper reporter asked him what kind of pleasure his wealth had brought him, this is what he said. I have had no real gratification or enjoyment of any sort more than my neighbor on the next block over who is worth only half a million. Only half a million. It's a sad commentary if you think about it, isn't it? It really is, but that's exactly what James is talking about. That's what James is saying here. Money's not going to buy you happiness. Money's really not going to buy you contentment. Money's not going to buy you peace of mind. I have known many people over the course of my ministry who have a lot more money than I do, but they are unhappy, restless people. And you probably know them as well. They're normally the main characters in reality shows. They've got everything that money can afford, everything that wealth can buy, and yet there is a restlessness in their spirit that they cannot seem to satisfy, a thirst that they cannot seem to quench. Riches will never provide you the kind of security that you ultimately need. As you've heard me say many times before, none of us is getting out of here alive. I think I've quoted to you before one of my favorite tombstones. I, I love to walk through cemeteries and look at tombstones. I just found a, a, a marvelous one across the street here to Little Lily. It had a lily on her tombstone. Little lily. It's just wonderful. You really get an insight into people. But this one is in the Aquia Churchyard in Stafford, Virginia. If you're ever there um, near Quantico, Virginia, and you're near Stafford, go and visit the old historic Aquia Church. It's a wonderful old Anglican church, colonial church, but it has this tombstone in the graveyard that reads, Dear Pastor, pause as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Tis best to prepare to follow me. Enjoy your lunch. <laughs> but that's exactly it, isn't it? Those are solemn words. They're good warnings to us. Now, maybe I've told you the other part of that story. Somebody came along and took a stone and scratched underneath. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. <laughs> Probably good advice as well. But here's how the author of Proverbs put it. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So that's what James is talking about. He says one other thing here, and that is this. Unjust acts are not forgotten. The God we worship is a God of justice, he is not immune to suffering, the suffering of his saints. He is not ignorant of the deceitfulness of wealth and those who take advantage of those less fortunate. And the promise is that one day he will indeed bring justice. It may be some time in coming, but the promise is that God will bring justice. 
Again, Jesus taught this in one of his parables, the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And he said if even the judge who was worn down by that persistent widow and the judge was unjust, if even he gave her justice, he said, do you not think that God will do the same? We have to understand that God's timeline is not the same as ours, but one thing that the Bible makes very clear is that God will set this broken and fallen world right. So those who are afflicted in this life, take heart, and that's what James is going to go on to talk about later on in this chapter. Take heart, because there is one who will distribute justice, and those who are taking advantage of others, beware. Because God will bring justice. A lack of judgment today does not mean a lack of judgment tomorrow. That's what James is teaching. So his real concern is the proper way that we deal with wealth. If wealth is not a sin, but it is a spiritual liability, James' primary concern here is with how we handle our wealth. If you've got wealth, if you've got property, these things are a blessing. They can be a blessing to you. They can be a spiritual liability, but they can be a blessing. The only question is what you do with them, how you handle them. And the New Testament gives us some very practical advice as to how we should handle our wealth. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Now, you're familiar with these verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44. Most people know this. This is a description of the early church. This is in the wake of Pentecost. These are the early days. The church has grown exponentially in these early days from about 120 followers at the time of Jesus' crucifixion to 3,120 followers as a result of Peter's great sermon on Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the church has grown exponentially. That growth is wonderful, but brings problems with it. Most of the converts were poor people. Those living in Jerusalem were not high-ranking officials. These were poor people. The church in Jerusalem always suffered. It's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was collecting what was known as the Jerusalem from fund from the Gentile churches to bring it to the church in Jerusalem to aid them because they were suffering. But here we have a description of that early church in those early days, and it's a beautiful picture. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. The early church did four things. They devoted themselves to four things. First thing was the apostles' teaching. That is to say, these were a people who were hungry for the Word of God. They recognized that God was speaking. And He was speaking through the words of the apostles. And so they were hungry. They devoted themselves. They didn't just simply become interested. We're told they devoted themselves to the study of the Word. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. The word there in Greek is koinonia. It means to hold something in common. They devoted themselves to fellowship. To the breaking of bread, what's that a reference to? 
that's to the Eucharist, to Holy Communion. That is to say, they devoted themselves to acts of worship. They went to church on a regular basis. And incidentally, they probably went to church on Sunday, which was the first day of the week. This was a dramatic thing for Jews to do because the Ten Commandments said, you shall keep holy what? The Sabbath day. What was the Sabbath? It was Saturday. Why were they worshiping on the first day of the week? Why were they breaking bread on the first day of the week? Because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. It would have to take something like a resurrection, something coming back from the dead, for Jews to break one of the commandments. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and finally to prayer. I submit to you that those are the very same things that every church should be devoted to. And look at what happened as a consequence. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That is to say, they devoted themselves to these things. The Holy Spirit was at work in their midst, and all who believed were together. And, listen to this, verse 44, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. That is to say, they worship corporately, they worship privately. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. No one had any need. Now, some have suggested that what you have here in Acts chapter 2 is the first example of communism. Because it says they held all things in common. What is communism? It's holding all things in common. Now, others who've been uncomfortable with that idea have said, no, it's not communism. Communism is a godless system. It's not the same thing. So others have said, well, if it's not communism, then it's something else. It's socialism. But I want to suggest to you that it's neither communism nor socialism. Communism is a system in which the government says nobody has a right to own anything. And socialism is a system where the government says, we'll tell you how much you can own. That's not the case here. No one was forced to give up anything. We're told they voluntarily gave it up. They were moved in their hearts in gratitude for the fact that Jesus Christ had given up everything for them. And it was out of grateful hearts that they were willing to give up everything for others. No one had any need, and look at what it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that church? Who would not want to be part of a church where the people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to worship in their homes and corporately, to fellowship, to prayer, and where the members of that community care for each other, know each other's needs so intimately that they care for each other, and no one in the fellowship has any need whatsoever. Do you know why people were being added daily to their numbers? I'll tell you why. It's because everybody on the outside looked at the church and said, those people are different. I'm out here struggling. The world is up against me. The rich are taking advantage of me, and these people care for each other. I want to be a part of that. And that's what made all the difference. 
That's how we're to handle our wealth, my friends. It's not that our wealth is sinful. It is a liability, but it can be a great tool, can it? A tool to make a difference in the world. A tool to lift up Jesus Christ. A tool to bring those who are on the outside into the fellowship of the church. And that is what it is designed to do. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you can't own things. Nowhere does the Bible endorse communism or socialism. As a matter of fact, think about the commandments. One of the commandments is, thou shalt not steal. Well, if you don't own anything, nobody can steal it from you. The very fact that the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, presupposes the notion that you do own things. So there's nothing wrong with owning things. The question is, and I put this two weeks ago when I preached, the question is whether or not your riches own you, not whether you own your riches. Now here's another example. Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It's just a carryover from two chapters earlier. Those who were believed were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had a right to own things, but no one said that it belongs to me. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. That's exactly how they looked at this. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we talked about him earlier. So people are bringing their wealth to the church, and the church is distributing among those who have need, and no one is in want as a consequence. Now, here's how I imagine what happens next. You know how this happens. Human beings can be jealous. How many of you have ever been jealous of another person? Envious of another person? Be honest. Oh, yes. So here's the situation. Barnabas, Joseph, comes. I said, I think, last week when I described him, he has this valuable piece of property. It's waterfront, deep water property. And he sells this piece of property. He gets a lot of money for it. He knows that the church is in need. He brings it to the church and he gives it to the apostles. He doesn't have to do it. Nobody asks him to do it. He does it of his own free will, out of gratitude for what Christ has done for him. And Peter and the others say, my goodness, I, I, I'm, I'm over, you can knock me over with a feather. I can't believe what you've done. Joseph, this, this is in, we can't call you Joseph anymore. You're Barnabas. You are a son of encouragement. We are all encouraged by you. Meanwhile, 
back in pew 32, behind the pillar. Nobody sits in pew 32. I should have looked before I came in here today to see who sits in pew 32. But just imagine somebody sitting back there in pew 32. It's a couple. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias says to Sapphira, oh, that Joseph, son of encouragement. And Sapphira says, well, you know, Ananias, we got that piece of property. It's not worth anything. We, we, we might be able to get a little bit for it. Why don't we go ahead and sell it? We're paying taxes on it. It's a pain anyway. Let's just go ahead and, and we'll sell that and we'll bring it to the church and, and we'll look as good as he does. Ananias said, you know, Sapphira, that's, that's not bad. It's a good idea. So that's exactly what they do. They go off. Now, this is, again, the Miller sanctified, amplified version of the story. But at any rate, they go out, they sell this piece of property and discover that, lo and behold, it garners more than they imagined. They get more for it than they thought. At which point, Ananias says, Sapphira, I don't know about that. I didn't expect to get that much. We weren't planning on giving that. You know what we could do with this? And Sapphira says, well, maybe we don't, they don't know how much we got for it. Let's just, just go ahead and, you know, give part of it. You know, give half of it. Ananias says, well, listen, they're talking about the tithe. I'm not giving 50%, 10% is ample. We'll just give 10%. And so there's this negotiation that goes on back and forth. And here's how the rest of the story goes. Chapter 5, verse 1. You have to use your imagination, folks. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now that sounds like, oh, wait a minute. Is this the whole thing that you got for this? Oh, yeah, that's, that's everything we got for it. Why has Satan put into your heart to lie? You're not lying to me, Ananias. You're lying to God. Now that sounds like God wanted everything. But that's not actually the case. Read on. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? There's a perfect example of the Bible saying it's perfectly legitimate for people to own property, to own possessions. It was your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Wasn't the money your own? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The problem was not that they had property. The problem was not that they sold the property. The problem was not that they made a profit on the property. The problem was that they what? Lied to God about their wealth, about their property. You've not lied to men, you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I'll bet it did. I'll bet there were a few other couples who were out there saying, okay, get the whole thing, just, just give the whole thing. 
the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, oh, yes, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I always say that is the most effective stewardship program <laughs> that any parish can possibly have. But all of these stories make one point very clear. Wealth is not a sin, but it is a liability. The question is not, do you have wealth? The question is, does your wealth have you? It is perfectly legitimate to have property. The question is, how are you handling it? How are you handling it? What are you doing with your property? Are you using it for temporal things, storing it up for here and now? Because let me tell you something, nobody's getting out of here alive. Or are you storing it up for eternity? Are you using it for those things that are eternal, those things that last? Are you using it to advance not your kingdom, but God's kingdom? That's the only question. So if you've got money, rejoice in that, but also recognize that you have an opportunity and an obligation to help those in need and to help advance the kingdom of God. This is really why I point out that the tithe, and this is going to be a shock, and I'm on record now because I'm being recorded for this, the tithe is really not the biblical standard. The tithe is the Old Testament standard. The New Testament standard is not 10%. Let me tell you something. The widow who brings in twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a year and has to live off that, or lives off Medicare, or, or Social Security rather, lives off Social Security, for her to give 10%, listen, that's a sacrifice. For somebody like Bill Gates, or Jeff Bezos to give 10%? Listen, that's pocket change, folks. For William Henry Vanderbilt to give 10% of $6 billion, that's a lot of money. But it's not a sacrifice. This is why Jesus pointed out that widow who went up to the temple and threw in her mites. The disciples were so impressed by all those wealthy people, and in those days they didn't have paper currency. In those days, they had metal coins. And they had these trumpet-shaped containers. There is a reason why there's that nice little felt pad on the bottom of the offering plate when it goes by. So you don't hear the clanging of the coins. Now we throw in paper currency so it doesn't make a difference. 
But in those days, they had these huge trumpet-shaped containers, and you dropped your coins down, and a big coin is going to make a big rattle as it makes its way down to the bottom of the container. And so the disciples were impressed. My gosh, remember, these are just fishermen from Galilee, and they see these wealthy people coming, throwing in their coins, and the clatter and the racket that it makes. Oh, boy, he put in a big amount right there. And along comes this little widow, and she throws in two little coins worth the fraction of a penny and it doesn't even make a tinkle. And Jesus said, look, look, see her? What? What about her? Look at her. She has given more than all the rest because they have given out of their abundance. She has given everything that she had. And that's the person after God's own heart. Because she recognized that she had to give everything that she had. She made a sacrifice because there was one who made a sacrifice for her. You see why James makes people uncomfortable? (laughs) Because he's practical. Because he forces us to look deep within ourselves and realize we are not the men and women we're supposed to be. And to come humbly before the Lord of grace, asking for his mercy, asking that he might take our hearts of stone and break them apart and give us a heart of flesh to love as he loved us. Let us pray. Father, we are wealthy people, and you've given us so much. Take away our hearts of stone. Take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh to love you. It's not just about our treasure, although it is about our treasure. It's about our time. It's about our talent. It's about all of who we are. We are to offer ourselves, we say it every Sunday, as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to Thee. Of course, the problem, Lord, with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. Grant us the grace. Grant us the courage. Grant us the desire to give all that we have for the sake of Him who gave everything for us, that around us there may be no need that the needs of all may be met and that those on the outside might be provoked to jealousy, that you might add to our number here at St. Philip's day by day those who are being saved. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.